Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. We are studying an ancient book written in the middle of the first century called The First Letter to the Corinthians. And today we come to chapter 13 again. And we'll be in chapter 13 for several weeks. Chapter 13 might be one of the most, it is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Maybe only behind the um, Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer. 1 Corinthians 13 is placarded everywhere in the Hallmark stores in their cards and we read chapter 13 and we say, ah, mm, love. <laughs> but it's a stinging rebuke when you read it in its context. Paul has just been addressing obstacles in worship and he had just told them at the very end of chapter 12 that you should earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then he stops his conversation and he talks about love. And then in chapter 14, he returns, uses the same phrase. Now earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And then he goes on to talk. Why does he stop in the midst of talking about spiritual gifts? Because the Corinthians forgot that love is a package deal. And so as I read this chapter, would you hear it again with fresh eyes as the rebuke that it was intended to be to show us the one who is love himself, even Jesus. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? There are only a few chap uh, verses printed in your bulletin, but I'm going to read all of chapter 13, which is 13 verses. Please listen. It's given to you in love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. 
but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Is this just hyperbole? Paul, are you just being hyperbolic? You say that you can do all these great things, but if you have not love, you're nothing? This week, I read about uh, an airplane crash. And airplane crashes are reported on what are called NTSB reports. Some of you know um, that National Transportation Safety Board. And there was an airplane crash where a, 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 a pilot had looked at his gauges and the gauges read fine. They were fine. But the engine blew up. And they later realized that the little wire that goes and it's supposed to go to, to read the cylinder temperature, uh, the cylinder head temperature actually wasn't attached at all. And it was reading uh, the heat off of the cylinder head, not in the cylinder head. And the engine dial said it was fine. But the engine exploded and the plane went down. And what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians is that, guys, you can look at the dials of your gifts and you can look at the gauges of how gifted you are. You can see all these amazing things that you can do. But, the, but if the wire is not in the cylinder head of love, the gauge is completely off. You can be incredibly talented. You can have great spiritual gifts. You can have prophetic powers. You can even be pastors of megachurches. You can do this amazing things. But if you have not love, if you haven't had a new nature, a new transformation of the heart, indeed, Paul's not being hyperbolic, you are nothing. And the gauge, Paul says for us, that we ought to be looking at, the real gauge is not in our power or our display of gifts, but it is in how warm are you? How patient? Are you kind? Do you not envy or, or boast? Like that is where the wire should be attached. Paul says that it is in love, not in gifts, that the church is to measure its authentic community. So, this morning I just want to ask uh, one question and then I want to talk about this dynamic just a little bit. And the question is this. How are we, the Trinity community, walking in love? Right here. In this local church. And then secondly, I want us to look at love's package deal. So, let's have a little family conversation. How are we, the Trinity community, doing walking in love. When I read this passage this week, I thought about the passage in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul is exhorting the church and he writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How can we be a community that walks in love? Man, I want that for this church. Don't you? I hope you do. What would it be like to be the presence in this community in Tulsa, in Owasso, in the surrounding area, to be a humble presence of Jesus? Obeying God's word, resting in his grace, filled with love and truth and warmth 
for others. The Corinthians were an, it was an amazing church. They were talented. They were ready to move mountains by their faith. They sacrificed. They gave their bodies to be burned. And yet Paul says verses 1 to 3 is who they are. And verses 4 to 7 is who they are not. Devoid of the context of chapter 13, you might think that this is like an exhaustive definition of love. But why does Paul, in defining love for that local church in Corinth, around 55 AD, why does Paul choose the words he chooses? Why does Paul say that love is kind, first of all? In Greek, why does he say the word is impatient? He's makrothumio. Love is patient. What does that mean? In Greek, it means to be short-tempered. It means the capacity to accept or to tolerate delay or to be troubled or to suffer without getting angry or upset. In Greek, the word means that you are patient with people over circumstances. Why does Paul choose that word? If you read 1 Corinthians 13 in the context of the whole of the book, you'll notice that every word he chooses is something he had previously described in the book that they are not. So, he says, for example, love is patient. But they had not been patient. 1 Corinthians 11, 20 and 21. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. They didn't have patience to wait for each other. The wealthy of the church who didn't have to work all day came early and ate. And then the, the workers would come later. And then finally those who were day laborers would come at the end. And they would show up and there would be nothing left. They weren't patient. That's why Paul chose patience. Or they hadn't been kind. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there was quarreling among you, my brothers. The word for kindness there is, um, is a unique word in the New Testament. It's not used anywhere else. And kindness is not niceness. <laughs> it's not, niceness is like a smile on the face. Kindness is, as one writer has said, a smile on the heart. Hmm, isn't that sweet? The, the word kindness used to be very common in the English vocabulary in this country, and it reached its zenith in the years right before the Civil War. But in literature, the word has taken a precipitous decline in the American vocabulary since the 1850s. Interesting, isn't it? And it took a dip back up right after 9-11 because we're longing for kindness. We want to see it. And in their case, they weren't kind. They quarreled amongst themselves. They envied and boasted. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, love doesn't envy or boast. Some said in chapter 1 of Corinthians, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And Paul has to say, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As it is written, let the one who boasts, Paul quotes scripture, boast in the Lord. And on and on we could go through each one of these words all throughout the chapter. Paul wrote these specific 
words to describe the love of that congregation, not to provide an exhaustive definition of what love is. In fact, he never defines it. Paul doesn't define what love is. He demonstrates what it looks like. And I wonder if in this church, if Paul were to write us a letter, if the Holy Spirit were to give us a letter and say, I want love to look like this at Trinity Presbyterian Church, what do you think it would look like? Where are we devoid of love? Because if you read this text in context, you recognize that this list of what love is is not exhaustive, but it is meant to be piercing. And it is meant to be contextual and applicable to you. So what about us? What would Paul say about Trinity? This weekend, I was in St. Louis, and uh, I went to the, um, the Francis Schaeffer Institute at Covenant Seminary to talk about um, the dynamics of apologetics and evangelism today and in the world where there's, there's just such a, um, not a fear, it's a wrong word, but there, there's a lot of people who are asking really good questions and they should ask those questions. Some of those questions are driven by a real thirst to know scripture better. Some of those questions are driven by hurt and the past that they've experienced even in the church. And one of the things that became so readily apparent to me is that one of the things that, that the ways I need to grow in love is that I need to grow in my ability to listen better. My wife would say, no duh. <laughs> but Francis Schaeffer used to have a, um, a, a rule that he and Edith Schaeffer used to practice called 55 and 5. And that was that when somebody came into their home, they would commit to listen to them for 55 minutes before they spoke for five. And I wonder what that would look like for us as a church. Have you read our confession of faith? It's like really thick and there's a lot of big words in it. And man, it would be fun to just hammer people and say, this is what we believe. But what would it be like? And they're going to get the truth. I mean, they're going to hear God's word. They're going to get it. But what would it be like to be at the kind of community who listened and really heard where people were and ministered to them with struggles that they have. So many churches have the 5 and 55 perspective. You're going to introduce yourself for five minutes and then you're going to listen to us for 55. And I know I'm probably already going long, you're thinking. But what would it be like for us as a church to be able to listen well, to invite people to our house who aren't believers, to just say, let's tell me your story. And to be able to help them understand their anger at God. And I couldn't believe in a God who would condemn people to hell as though he sounds like he's some kind of warden. And to listen to them and to be able to hear their concerns and be able to say, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to believe in a God like that either. In fact, thank you for saying that. I, I wouldn't want to believe in that kind of God either, but, but that's not the kind of God I believe in as a Christian. Well, you say you're a Christian. Yeah, but that's not the kind of God I believe in. Let's look at it together afresh. What would it be like if we were able to listen? So maybe Paul might say to us, love listens. Maybe Paul might say to us, love stops comparing. I mean, our, the worship team is fantastic. But you know how we measure worship at our church? It's not by, the, it's, it's not by the, the quality of the worship team or how many instruments are up here. It's by how loud you're singing. But I know that our default when we worship, when we come to churches, is like, all right, love the worship. I'm in. Let's go back. 
love the preaching. I'm back. But what would it be like if we said, you know, we are not going to be a community that is going to constantly be sizing ourselves up, but we're going to be a community who is constantly walking in the profound good news that Jesus would save sinners like us. What might that do to us? How might that shape us? You don't pursue humility directly. You pursue humility by looking at Jesus. And he humbles you because you see how beautiful he is and how short of his holy standards we fall. I wonder what else he might say to us. And if you would be so bold, I would encourage you to take 1 Corinthians 13 out this week in your own time with the Lord in his word or driving down the highway and just say, Lord, where do I need to grow in love? And why is that such an important question? Because point number two is that love is a package deal. Love is a package deal. In 1738, when Jonathan Edwards preached a series of sermons on, um, on this chapter, it was, according to one scholar, it was the only example of Edwards ever preaching expositionally through Scripture. He preaches, in, and I think it's like in Sermon 12, he gets to this, uh, this, this, uh, he, this phrase. He says that uh, Christian graces concatenate. Do you know that word? I don't know that word. I had to look it up. Concatenate. And if you do Excel files, I've heard that you know what that word is because it's like an Excel. I see some people laughing. Yeah, if you work with Excel, there's like a secret. Excel. What does that mean? Excel workers. Tell us what that word means. It means to link things together in a series, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I see. So it means to link things together. And so to concatenate something is to mean that they're all linked together. And what Edwards is saying in this sermon, he says that when you get to verses 4 to 7, you have to see that you tend to approach this passage like, I need to be more patient. Yes, I need to be more patient. Yes, let's do that. But he says, no, no, don't look at it like that. If you are an incredibly aggressive person or a dominant personality or you're a strong leader in the room, then the way you measure love is if you also are incredibly warm and tender. And if you're a person who's very emotional or very in touch, very compassionate, very intuitive, if you're able to understand people's emotions and you take them on yourself and you are fearful of their rejection of you. Edward says, for you, what it means to grow in love is actually to grow stronger in your ability to say hard things to people even if they're going to reject you or your fear of them rejecting you. These, these aspects of love grow together. This is why husbands and wives complement each other so well because you see that love in a marriage concatenates, that between the two of them, they're incredibly complementary. And so also in our own growth in love, it's not that we say, okay, well, I need to be patient this week. I need to be kind that week. It's that, no, you're always growing in all of these ways. When you plant an apple tree in your backyard, the fruit generally comes out all at once, right? And in the same way, Edward says that when you grow in love, if you are a strong and dominant, loud person, then you, how, how are you doing being warm? Listening. Men, if you are not very emotional and your wife is, how are you doing listening, really listening, being tender and patient with her? If you are someone who is just incredibly, incredibly gracious with, with your time, 
and yet you have somebody in your, spouse, in, your, in your house who really needs you for a particular period of time, are you able to change your schedule for them? Or might it be loving for you to actually do some self-care <laughs> and to practice the Sabbath, to take a break, to spend some time alone? Might that be a way of loving? Do you see, so do you see what it means to have love be a package deal. You're growing together. All of these aspects grow together and you grow up to become more loving. And often the way you need to grow is actually the exact opposite of the disposition of your gifts. Paul has just talked about our gifts, how strong they are in our gifts, but if they don't have love, then they're nothing. You can be a great leader, you can be a great servant, you can be a great, you can be very hospitable, but are you growing in warmth? Hmm? Are you growing in tenderness? Are you growing in gentleness? God created the world by the power of his word. Words for Christians mean something. How about yours? Are your words seasoned with care and love? Are you communicating for the other person? Or are you simply communicating to yourself in front of another person? Are you really present with them? These are the ways that we grow in love. And I just wonder how the Holy Spirit might help you grow in love because one of the most damning aspects of this passage for me is when he gets down here when he says, love does not insist on its own way. Because the reasons we aren't loving in certain areas of our life is because we have insisted on our own way. You know, parents know this. If you, have, uh, if you have children, you know that when they're little, at some point, they will, begin, they will begin to say that, I can do it, Mommy. I can do it, Daddy. I don't need your help anymore, Mommy or Daddy. And then when you have teenagers, mm, you hear them say, I don't need you. I can do it. And, and why do they say that? Yes, indeed, they're growing in their ability to do new things, and they're more independent. But, but Many times, the way I said it when I was a teenager is what I really meant was, Mom and Dad, I can do it because I don't want to be under your authority anymore. I don't want to play by your rules anymore. I can do it. I can do it. And what I was really saying is, I don't need you. And Paul is saying that the same thing is said of the Corinthians. When they say, love does not seek its own way, the Corinthians were seeking their own way. They were saying, I can do it, God. Look at our gifts. Look what we can do. I don't need you. And Paul says that self-justification is the fastest way to blow your engine. And you justify all sorts of actions all the time. Self-justification is at the heart of the gospel. A humble heart says, I am a totally loved moral failure. And so I can relax. But a proud heart says, I've worked my fingers to the bone. Where's the thanks? People, don't you see what I've done? God, you owe me. Why am I suffering like this? I can do it. But love seeks not its own. St. Augustine lived from 354 to 430 and he wrote in his confessions that he, he, um, he wasn't uh, just a sinner, as he says in the confessions before. He wasn't just unchaste. He was 
inordinately loving. He loved everything. And he was well known amongst the ladies in Milan for being well known. And when he came to faith through Ambrose when he was at Milan, he wrote, what does love look like? It has the hands to help others when inconvenient. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy when there seems to be no time. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men, not only of yourself. This is what love, lo love looks like. And then he writes, Late have I loved you, O beauty. Ever ancient, ever new, late have I loved you, and behold, you are within me, and I out of myself, and there I searched for you. What's he describing? He's describing his changed heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. They gave him a totally new way to view love. Somebody will say, well, Blake, are you saying that if you are not a Christian, you can't be loving? No, I'm not saying that. That is, the Bible never teaches that people who aren't Christians can't be loving. Look at, the, look, I mean, think about what the world would be like if there were only Christians who could be loving. There's amazing parents out there who don't profess faith in Jesus who are incredibly good parents, very loving. But what I am saying is that when you understand love, when you meet him, your nature's changed. And it's not just a degree, but a kind of love. It is a love that does not seek its own. In the passage that uh, Amanda and Nathan read earlier in the service, there, there's a place in, you know, in, in 1 John where um, John says, I give you an old commandment, but a new commandment. An old commandment to love one another, but it's a new commandment. Well, it's an old commandment because every age, every space, every place understands the concept of giving of yourself for the other person. But it's a new commandment. Why? John's point is that when you meet Christ, it's as though the whole world opens up again and it becomes about him, not about you. And it's a renewed motivation for you to love even when it's hard. And so, when we understand that love seeks not its own, we begin to see the perfect example of that because the description and demonstration of what love is, which is never defined, points us to the only one who could possibly define it for us, and that is Jesus. And Jesus defines it by being love himself. And the, for me, the best picture of his love is when he's on the cross, and as I said last week, it wasn't his power that held him on the cross, it was his love for you. He knew your name on that cross. And he says, I want you. You. Not the person next to you. I want you. But it's the question Jesus asked his father that just staggers me the most. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus endured. Endured the rejection of his father. The wrath of his father. And for all eternity having experienced his love. So that you wouldn't have to be rejected. He endured it so that you could be embraced and that you could see what love is. And it's in him. And so Trinity, what would it be like if we heard this letter written to us and we responded with faith and repentance to God saying to us, love is. And you look at Jesus. And you're transformed and you're shaped, 
And yes, you'll, you'll be made more patient and you will be made more kind and you will be able to be less envious and boast not in yourself. But you will also not insist on your own way and you will lay your self-justifying behavior down. And that is really where the gospel goes to work. So let's be that kind of community, Trinity. Let's be that kind of community that says, you know why love isn't defined? Because God is constantly at work in me to try to be the hands and feet in this community for him. God is constantly at work in me to try to communicate the beauty of the gospel. And I know that I can then serve, even at great sacrifice. Why? Because Jesus was the one who did all the work for me on the cross. Edwards um, concludes one of his sermons by talking about uh, uh, Satan and why Satan isn't lovely. And he says, Satan isn't lovely, not because he can't be patient, not because he can't be kind, not because he doesn't envy or boast. Satan can do all these things, probably better than anybody else. Um, why can Satan not love? Satan can't love because he cannot see the loveliness of Jesus. Because when you begin to see the loveliness of Jesus, you find that your heart is transformed. It's not just changed by degree. You're not just changing your behavior. It's changed in nature. And that alters your fundamental motivation about life. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I just want to encourage you to consider that in your search for love, it is not found in behavioral change. It is found in a person. And he wants to know you. And in just a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And I encourage you as you circle around these stations and as you watch the elements be served, you think about Jesus' death for you, especially you kiddos, children who haven't yet come to the table. He did that for you. It's wine and bread, but he shed his blood and he died on the cross to win you. So, love is a package deal and we're all in it together. And let's look to the loveliness of Christ and become that kind of community that Paul so desperately wants us to be and demonstrate and look at the right dials to measure our success, namely our love for one another and for our King. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would take us and you would make us a loving community. That you would concatenate our loves, that you would help us to grow. Those of us who are very patient, Lord, would you help us not to seek our own? Would you help us not to be envious or boastful? Would you humble us by the power of your word? And would you remind us that you yourself are love incarnate. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.